She was a working girl, north of England way. And if she could only hear me, this is what I'd say. All right, beloved Foibles listeners, you're in for a treat. I am both nervous and excited because we're going to do one of our big, meaty, chunky podcasts about... Marlena Dietrich. And Zoe and I have been preparing this for months. We watched every one of her films that we could get a hold of, pretty much. And uh, I read a couple books, three books about her, and uh, have done all kinds of research. So uh, we'll try to present it in an entertaining and interesting fashion here. Months in the making. And Zoe will make sure that it's interesting with her (laughs) editing uh, expertise. But first of all, my first question here, the first thing we want to bring out is, I want to know from Zoe, would people of your generation even know who Marlena Dietrich is? You know, I really don't think so. Um, They might have a vague recognition of the name or recognize a recorded song vaguely, but that's about it. Okay. All right. I, I even think that people of my generation, probably there are some people who don't even know who she is. I think it's pro- she wasn't even that famous from, from my age because when I was growing up and watching films, she was already in retirement. So, But I think my mother's generation and even my grandmother's generation would have known who she was. She was one of the most famous Hollywood actresses at the time. That would be the 30s, 40s, and 50s. She was huge. She was one of the highest paid stars at one time, which is amazing. Uh, and she originally was born in Germany in Berlin, 1901. Uh, So obviously this was before any of the world wars. This is right at the turn of the century. Berlin was thriving. It was bustling. And the uh, art scene was beginning to grow. Unfortunately, World War I hit, flattened the country. Uh, As we all know, they lost. And they were economically devastated. But it had an amazing effect on the arts at that time. What happened was... The old, sort of rigid, uh, classical kind of approach to art was crushed by the war. And the young people, who Marlena would have been part of, she would have been 18, 19, 20, right at this time, beginning her career, she and this group of people came up, and the freedom was amazing because these old structures had been, been crushed. I mean, there were still museums and there was still a movie theater uh, I should say a movie production company there called Ufa UFA and uh, but the, the point of view on art sexuality how you live your life interactions was just so free Berlin was really known for that it was also known by a lot of people of being very very decadent so this is the period when Marlena was a young woman she was coming up through the arts because primarily she started out, her mother got her started on violin. So Marlena actually played violin extremely well. But it ended up that she didn't get accepted to the academy. She always said that she just quit because she got a, a weird, I don't know, her story didn't make any sense, some kind of weird lump on her wrist and she couldn't play, which actually wasn't, doesn't sound like it was very true. And uh, she came up with other 
reasons, but really she didn't go forward in violin because she didn't get accepted to the school. Uh, and really, I think that was probably for the best because she was so beautiful, so charismatic that the stage was just drew her and she wanted to get into acting school and she wasn't accepted to acting school. So she basically just ran around the theaters and got jobs and she was a chorus girl and she sang songs. Ultimately, she transferred over into film. She strikes me as a driven, motivated, almost ruthless person when it comes to her career. I mean, she worked herself to the nub. I mean, she worked hard and she had a lot of ideas about how she wanted to present herself and who she was. She was perhaps bisexual. Certainly she was a lesbian. There's no question about that. Uh, and there was a huge lesbian scene, or gay scene generally, but a huge lesbian scene going on at that time where uh, they wore violets, like the, the flower was a violet, so you'd like wear a bunch of violets to signify and she would wear violets on stage and you know she'd wear them down at her waist and she would be very saucy and she'd sing songs with women with a lot of innuendo and signifying and so forth and and she could do that because at that time there was so much freedom she could freely express whatever side of herself she wanted to express which was pretty amazing i think and i think that coming from that place she always retained a feeling that she had the right to live her life the way she wanted to and to express herself the way she wanted to express herself. That kind of internal motivation and power filtered through her beauty, her an unusual beauty, striking beauty, really created a charisma more than a talent. She wasn't so much this great talented actress or a great talented singer, but she had a force that, that came through her that was pretty mesmerizing and, and carried her through I don't remember, let's see, her career, she started when she was about 18 or so, maybe, 1920, and she retired in her 70s, so 50 years, and that's very, very unusual. She's a remarkable woman, an extremely beautiful woman, an icon uh, for part of her life anyway, and really worth looking at, because she's not someone that pe people talk about much, but she's very, very interesting. Honey pie, my position is tragic. Come and show me the magic of your Hollywood song. You became a legend of the silver screen. So I encountered Marlena in my young days when I was watching those old films at the Repertory Theater and so forth, and I saw her, and I thought that her films were remarkable. I saw the early ones, the early ones she did in the United States in the 30s, and then I wanted to introduce you to her. And so what did you see and think when you started? Do you even remember the first film that we watched together? So Marlena Dietrich started her career in silent films, moved into black and white, and then there were some later films after that. I think the first one that I would have seen with you, with Marlena in it, would have been Destry Rides Again. Oh, um, Just yeah. because it's so friendly to a younger audience. Um, the film itself is like a, 
a western um comedy movie. western yeah it's but it's yeah it's silly um the the protagonist the trope or the sorry the gimmick of it is that the protagonist is a pacifist and so that creates comedic situations um well the protagonist was jimmy stewart he was a sheriff of the town and he didn't carry a gun and uh, marlena played a uh, floozy basically her name was frenchy because they had to account for her german accent when this film was made in the middle well I guess right at 1944, 1945. So it was right in the middle of the war, and they didn't couldn't have this German woman on there on the screen, so she was called Frenchie. So right. that's why she had an accent. And she's a dance hall floozy and a fiery hellcat. But I think, actually, getting back to this, and I, I want to add this to the end, Marlena had a, that very long career in film. But then, after that, she went on the to Las Vegas, and she toured the world over and over and over again with a, a singing concert. And amazingly, she her uh, musical director was Burt Bacharach, so if anyone knows Raindrops Keep Falling on My Head or Wish and Hope and Thinking and Praying or any of those songs, that was Burt Bacharach's music. He became a huge, uh, huge musical force in film and theater and so forth during the 60s and 70s for sure. Anyway, he was Marlene's musical director. And uh, I think that really, this is my memory anyway, that almost wasn't the film that first got you interested, but I would play her CDs. Yeah, so, yeah, for me, we watched Destry Rides again pretty early, and I really enjoyed the movie, but I didn't connect Marlena with any of the music that I had heard. Um, I think it was when I first got iTunes um, and started uploading all our CDs like mad, oh, right, right, them yeah. onto my iPod, and also started working at a cafe and play, getting to play music over the um, the sound system. And I started, and I picked up the CD of Marlena, and I started listening to it, and I was like, "This is a very idiosyncratic style, yeah, absolutely, very distinct and unusual." Um, she's kind of a crooner like this and like she kind of talks sings yeah almost. and yeah. she has a deep voice yes. and, and an accent right and she sings in german she sings also some songs from like the 60s or whatever um like bob dylan song she covers blown in the wind yeah. that really intrigued me because i had to learn how to sing that one in choir in elementary school <laughs> or whatever um and it, so it made me it, re- it brought back a resurgence in my curiosity about who it was How many roads must a man walk down Before you call him a man How many seas must a white dove sail Before she sleeps in the sand How many times Must the cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned The answer, my friend Is blown in the wind The answer is blown in the wind Well, it's interesting that the later songs, like the Bob Dylan, this, uh, was the ones that intrigued you. Because for me, I hate it when she sings. <laughs> I hate those. I just, it, to me, she's old-timey. She's classic. And so when she sings those mo- more modern songs, I think, ugh. 
this doesn't fit. You know, it's sort of like a an opera singer trying to sing the Beatles. You know what I mean? For well, I mean, definitely a line of familiarity kind of helped get me interested, right? Yeah, okay. Because when, when there's something that's so far, she's she's in black and white movies. You know, she's and then she's it, singing these songs. Well, yeah. yeah, yeah. And, um, and and also just the fact that for for mom, having grown up in the 60s, 70s, 80s, what's kitschy for her is like cool and retro for me. That's <laughs> yeah, <so>. true. <laughs> it's absolutely true. It, it's funny because the ones I love of hers are the ones from the 30s. And we'll take a little break here for the listeners and say that I want to let you know that we're having our chat here, but this is not going to be all. We are going to organize this. It's, there's a lot of material. We're going to go back. We're going to fill in. We just want to give you a sense of the excitement and the depth and breadth of Marlena and her life. But we're going to go back. We're going to give you a lot more details and, and information. So I just wanted to make that little aside in case you were getting a little nervous that there's a lot going on here and it wasn't specifically organized. But we worked hard on getting a lot of information and we do want to make it as accessible as possible. But I want to go back to talking about the music again because uh, I have to say I think that her music for me is as interesting and prov- provocative if you will, as her film presence, is, uh, her singing is. One of the songs that I want to highlight is Lily Marlene. I don't know if you've ever heard this song, but Lily Marlene was a big song in World War One. I. I don't know if she sang it at, at World War One time, but she sang it in World War Two. It's a it's a beautiful ballad, uh, singing about a soldier who's alone in the barracks reading a letter or thinking of his love, Lily Marlene, and it has a very bittersweet quality in that he may never come back. In fact, it's, he's going off to battle, and he may never see Lily Marlene again and how much he yearns and loves her. And she sings it so wonderfully. Um, it was a World War One song. Um, she sang it through the 30s, and then when World War Two came, it really became a big hit for her again because she was singing it to the soldiers. She was definitely pro-United States, anti-Nazi. She went out there and met the soldiers and sang for them. And that song, iconic, again, we're back to that word again, but it was an iconic song of that period of the of the Second World War. Da, 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 da. Put it right in there. It's so good. I love that song. Bei der Kaserne vor dem großen Tor steht ne Laterne und steht sie noch davor. Da wollen wir uns wiedersehen. Bei der Laterne wollen wir stehen wie einst Lily Marlene. Oh, yeah. 
And uh, what about Lola and Lola? My name is something Lola. Ich bin die Fische Lola, der Lippig der Saison. Ich hab ein Pianola zu Hause in meinem Salon. Doch will mich wer begleiten, da unten aus dem Saal. Dem hau ich in die Seiten und seh ihm aufs Pedal. Ich bin die Fische Lola, der Lippig der Saison. That's, I, don't know. I just like how she talks about she has a pianola. Don't right. don't pound upon the keys, and it's such so suggestive. Yeah, that's so she sings that one in a really early yeah. hit of hers. That very kind of made early. Her big. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as you're listening to these, I do want to acknowledge that her voice and her song, even though it was it was quite quite popular and she's quite the thing, still it's. It's a very dis- unique kind of eccentric taste. Not everyone is going to like her voice or her style. One of our listeners, Marge, who is a, uh, is a, who is a friend of mine from work and is not a fan of Marlena's singing. Hmm. She does not like it. It does not speak to her. And so I have to acknowledge that it definitely is something that you're either going to like it or you're not going to. And that's okay. I just want to acknowledge that. I mean, people are listening to this and they, if they listen to it and they go, what are they on about? Why do I, is there something wrong with my, you know, trying trying to adjust the sound? Don't adjust the sound. Either you're going to like it or you're not. (laughs) A lot of these songs are included in her movies. Every single, I think she has a song in every single movie, doesn't she? Except for uh, Judgment Nuremberg. Pretty much. (laughs) And, and well, the the last few in her career. Yeah. So I know we said that we were going to organize this, but one of the difficulties is how. So I'm going to start out here giving a little bit of history of Marlena, talk a little bit about her, her eras or stages as she went through her career, and then we'll get you know, we'll get down to some real recommendations. An analysis of her personality. Yeah. So we're going to try to go in that direction, and hopefully this will work for you. But feel free to send us any questions or anything that we can clarify for you. Okay. So as I said, she was born in 1901. I just think that's amazing. I don't know why. Excuse me. Just the very beginning of the era. Yeah, the very beginning of the modern era, if you will. And she, as I said, she played the violin. Her dad, Miss, uh, he was a in the army, and he, I believe he was a police officer. He was like a, a high up in the police, and so they had kind of she had kind of an aristocratic background. They were well to do. Her dad dies when she's about six, and uh, it was pretty pretty big blow. But then her mother remarried, and then she had a stepdad, and then very shortly he dies. So when World War One hits, they are. Well, her father, her stepfather is in the army, but then he dies. Anyway, they are hit by the poverty. Apparently, they ate turnips or potatoes. I forget which one it was. Some root ground food every day. So that when she got to be grown up and had money, she would not eat that food ever again. I think it was turnips. (laughs) Everything was turnips. Oh, my gosh. It was really, really, really rough. But 
the impression I get of Marlena is that she was lively and really had her own mind, which did not go well with the child-rearing uh, style of the Germans. I don't know if it's still this way, but but being German, and I think I can speak a little bit of this because a large part of my background is German, is an was an intense experience because children not only should not be seen seen and not heard, they probably shouldn't even be seen. You know, children were about it was about being obedient and it was about being very regimented. It was almost like living in a military compound for for a number of German children, and it was a rough rough way to be raised and there's a really interesting book called um for your own good for your own good and it's by alice miller she's a freudian psychologist or jungian psychologist i should say and she uh actually does an analysis of this german what she calls the pedagogical way of raising children meaning i'm hurting you to teach you for your own good so i'll spank you and i'll punish you and i'll do these things for your own good to teach you and and this rigidity and this harsh way of raising it she actually attributes the rise of nazism to this way of educating children because the children of marlena's time were the ones who were the young nazis and the people who were supporting Hitler. And she said that that, that kind of lack of compassion, that sort of uh, personality is, is created by the way German children were raised at the standard thing. I'm going to digress a little bit, but this is so interesting. There was a children's book from the late 1800s, so this would be, you know, a little bit before Marlena, but it was, in fact, you have a copy of it, I think. It was called uh, something Peter, like Stumpful Peter. I can't think of the exact right word. But it was a uh, book of moral tales and lessons, like a fairy tale to teach children to be good. And Shock-Haired Peter. It's called Shock-Haired Peter. Huh. And, like, there's one story where the, ch- the the child's playing with the scissors and he's not supposed to. So his fingers get cut off and the blood comes and there's pictures of that. Yeah. So that was like a, that I was kind of remember that. That was kind of that mentality. Yeah. You know, there's no gentleness there and it was pretty horrifying. And so, um, not that children might not be kind of fascinated by that too, but that was kind of the attitude. So that's what she came out of. And, uh, apparently she did say near the end of her life that her mother was a very hard woman. Um, apparently if someone, she would hire servants when they're better days and they would clean the house. Never good enough. Then her mother would go back and re-scrub every floor and clean everything. And Marlena sort of learned this. Good part of it is the work ethic. The bad part of it is the rigidity and the perfectionism that is for nothing, that is pointless. So that's what she came out of. And she kept diaries. This is very interesting. If you're interested in reading Marlena's diary, there's a book called Marlena by her daughter Maria Rivera and Maria has all these diaries and so she puts excerpts in the book from them and when she was a young girl she was always interested in you know she fell in love with her French teacher and was deeply in love with her French teacher until the war came and the French teacher had to leave and she liked going out and seeing the boys and the girls and they did something called brummeling and brummeling was sort of walking up and down the sidewalk and you know greeting people and kind of, you know, flirting a little bit. And it was so innocent, but it was considered so bad. You were like a loose, her mother just 
blew up, but she did it anyway. Oh, wow. <laughs> and she was uh, considered very pretty, and I guess she, she really, really likes to emphasize how good she, what a good looker she was. And she would go out there and have a good time, and she just didn't care. And that really kind of exemplified her for the rest of her life. She was rebellious. She was going to do it her own way. She didn't care about what the quote-unquote morals were. And um, she ended up going into the arts because of that, obviously. She had needed to have that kind of freedom that you could get in the arts. She wasn't going to be, she wasn't going, wasn't going to be no housefrau. I could say right up front, Marlene was not a very good and nice person. She was a pretty kind of a dysfunctional person and a little bit toxic. But there are elements of her that I just love. And this young Marlena really exemplifies all of them. There's a reason why she's so successful and why maybe the best of her can come through on screen. Right. The spirit mm-hmm. and, and that spiritedness and her, uh, her unwillingness to be crushed. Because mm-hmm. apparently she had a, one sibling, an older sister, by, I think she's three, three or four years older. And that uh, older sister was just crushed by the, the system. She was always a uh, very timid, mousy person who got married and just did whatever her husband wanted and followed him like a good wife is supposed to do in those days. So um, Marlena was going to have none of that. So she gets up into uh, into the 20s, and she uh, gets connected up at UFA, the film uh, production company there in Berlin, and she makes a bunch of uh, films. She is not the star. She has little parts. She builds up, and she gets featured parts, and so on and so forth until she... All silent films. All silent films, until she gets noticed. And she, interestingly, there's a play, I believe, that she was in where she plays the judge's mistress... And then they were going to film it, I think. I'm a little bit fuzzy on those details. Please forgive me. But, And in it, she, well, she would often create her own costumes. Marlena's thing was her look. Her looks and her costumes and the way she looked. More important than acting, even. Although later years, she, she got some acting. She, she built some acting talent. She basically was not an actress when she first started. She was more of a personality. So she figures out this thing where she's going to wear this monocle. She's in the courtroom. She's watching a murder trial. She's back there flirting around and being light and frothy, and she's wearing this monocle, which was just this look. And you can go online and see this picture, and it's really a cool look. It's one of her father's monocles. She was noticed by a young director named Joseph von Sternberg, or Josef von Sternberg. And von Sternberg, interesting, was actually an American, even though he sounds German, and he sort of put on this European continental attitude toward art. Art not, is not commercial, art is art, and that's really much higher than the commercialism. So he was not this American-style kind of Which is interesting, because his films ended up being pretty commercial, right? Absolutely, absolutely. And he would say because they were good art, probably. But he did, uh, he was in Germany looking uh, looking to make a film, and it was a very, very famous film called The Blue Angel, or Die Blaue Angel. I'm going to let you say all the German words. <laughs> Blue Angel. I think a lot of people have heard that one, uh, heard of it, and a lot of people have heard the song, because really the song, is, I think, is the thing that people, most people never even seen the film, but yeah. they remember the song she sang in it, of course, and that yes. was... Falling in love again, never wanted to. What am I to do? I can't help it. <laughs> That's a pretty good imitation. <laughs> that, that was actually not Marlena. That was me. <laughs> 
Shockingly. <laughs> Shockingly. Um, and apparently the, the English translation is not a direct tra- the, uh, from the German, that the German is somewhat different in terms of the sentiments and the words. But nonetheless, she plays a floozy, which she plays lots of floozies. Oh, yeah, definitely. And I mean, I wonder if those were just the roles at the time. Well, I think it's her. Yeah. I mean, any role where she's not playing a floozy or a temptress or a siren, is she any good? No, not really. Not really. No, she's kind of boring. Yeah. That's really, there's something about that that... I guess it's just maybe the, like, complete entanglement of sexual freedom and Art. vibrancy or whatever. Yeah, in, yeah. And, and in her life. Yeah. I mean, I think I don't think that that's true of everyone, but she had uh, her first sexual experience very young. It was her violin teacher, actually, where Ooh. she w- went away to school. Her mother sent her away to school, I guess, to prevent all the brummeling, and she... <laughs> <laughs> and she, uh, she, she didn't think much of it. Um, mm. Throughout her life, she did not think. She said. She said. In fact, even she even says this in the documentary at the end of her life. She never enjoyed sex with men. Now she never addresses sex with women, but she had an affair, affairs with women throughout her life, and it seems to me that that was her preference. But men had the power, and and she was raised to think that men were better than women, and, and she often said that she didn't trust women or like women and that women were kind of stupid, except for her, of course. Yeah. They're, they're, she was the exception. We'll get more into it later, yeah. but, yeah, she has a very complicated relationship with... Sexuality. Sexuality, love affairs, men, women, gender, all of it. All of it. She's very, very complicated. Yeah. She's a complicated person, yeah. but uh, she did have that, that young young affair early on, and then she continued having affairs. Yeah. From that point, she was pretty She's much free. Completely parallel to her her film career and everything. Yeah. There's so many affairs going on at yeah. any given time, which we'll talk more about. Well, yeah, it just, it just, it blows out of proportion. At this point, she's just sort of serial, just one after the other. Um, and she, at this time, she's still, her name is still Maria Magdalena, which is the name that she was born with. She was not yet Marlena until she started working on the stage. Uh, around 18 or 19, she, or maybe she was 16. I think she was actually around 16 where she, uh, kind of squashed her name together and, and decided she was Marlena and not Maria Magdalena anymore. So uh, where was I? I've lost my train of thought. So we were talking about her first affair. Yes. But what led me to that? Von Sternberg. Oh, Von Sternberg. Okay. He noticed her wearing this monocle. That's and- right. Yes. So she was this amazing woman. But she was a married woman at that time, so she'd had really? these affairs. Yeah, before she met von Sternberg. Sorry to digress, but this is important. She married. She found uh, a young, handsome. I guess he was an art director in, at the theater, and they met. And his name was Rudy Z- uh, Zieber. She got pregnant. She had her one child, Maria, and she never wanted to get pregnant again. She, in fact, she had a number of abortions. Well, yeah, she had a few abortions in her life. Uh, she never didn't want to have any more children, and she didn't want to have sex with Rudy anymore. Basically, um, it followed the pattern of her, her usual pattern where she would meet someone, she wanted to attract them. If they wanted to have sex with her, she felt she had to do it, you know, either to make them feel better or not, reje- not reject them. I'm sure she did reject some people, but um, once she had run the course of her first infatuation, she wasn't interested anymore in him. So she never had sex again with her husband, even though they were married for like 55 years. Pretty amazing. Yeah, I know. They had this open relationship, yeah, right? Yeah. So he could have any affairs he wanted. She didn't yeah. care. He didn't He didn't want that. He wanted to be with her, but she, 
you know, she kind of decided decided that's how it's going to be, and he was willing to stay married to her, and they had they had the, the the child, which is what Marlena called her daughter. That they both called her the child. Anyway, so now she's a married woman. She decides she's she's going to be she's going to go back on the stage. She's going to get work. She's working like anything. Her husband never really was much of a success as a as a career. So he, you know, somebody did need to work and, and earn the bread, but also she would have done it anyway. She was not going to be staying at home. She would be bored out of her mind. So now we're at von Sternberg. So she meets von Sternberg, and he sees her, and he is casting a film, The Blue Angel, and he was looking for, for Lola Lola. Lola Lola, and I love it that it's twice. Isn't yeah. that even better than just Lola? Yeah. She is a she's a free spirit, but she's also available for purchase. She's a floozy, but a special kind of floozy, wouldn't you say? She's, she, I mean, she has she's kind of powerful in the sense that she's a performer. Um, she's really popular performer, and people just want to see her perform. There are these postcards made of her that are all kind of sexy, <laughs> and the boys in in school are passing them around. Yeah, so she is. Yeah, you're right. She is kind of a celebrity, but she's also uh, sleep. You know, uh, clearly sleeps with people for money, uh, for favors. It isn't so much prostitution directly, like uh, I'll do this for this much money, but it's more like champagne, gifts, flowers, yeah, courtesan kind of, kind of thing. Escort, yeah, yeah, exactly. And he 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 saw her, and that's the one. Mm-hmm. He he knew it. I mean, she had to do a. a, a an audition, but the studio or whoever was funding it were negative because who the hell is she? I mean, she's nobody at that point in terms of her fame. But von Sternberg knew, and he brought her in and began working with her, and a lot of interesting things happened, I think. First of all, a pattern occurred here that followed her for most of her life, maybe a little less so at the end when she was older, where the art and the relationship merge. So she became uh, lovers with von Sternberg. He loved her madly. She worshipped him in terms of his artistry, his vision, what he did for her because she was the, the Galatea. He was the Pygmalion. He took the statue, he took the form, and he created a persona in, in her. And the way he did it was by, first of all, he made her lose weight. She was pretty chunky because she loved to eat. And she was pretty chunky at that time. If you see pictures of her, uh, he made her lose some weight. She's still pretty kind of chunky, but very attractive. <laughs> curvy lass curvy lass but it was funny because you know he 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 you know told her that she should and she did then she went out and this seemed to inspire her this this opportunity to be in the film to have someone so focused on her so into her both as an artist and a person it seemed to spark something alive in her and she developed, she developed all her own costumes. She went out on the street and she found prostitutes and she found, uh, and particularly uh, a trans, certain transvestite prostitute, apparently, who she would study their style and their movement and everything. And, and she copied and created a style for Lola Lola based on the reality. Oh. 
So uh, she went through her trunks and she went out and I mean, they didn't have, there wasn't a lot of money like in Hollywood. So she, she, and she bought cheap stuff and she, she's the one who created that crazy, she had this crazy, like, weren't they like lacy, like pantaloony things? And yeah. then she had a skirt that seemed to have a wire that lifted it up. So it was always kind of flipped up so you could see her pan, pantaloons when she, yeah. when she was on stage. And she wore the top hat. Top hat, yeah. She she was really brilliant at combining menswear and womenswear, oh, which fantastic. I don't know. Maybe that kind of is a indicative of her sexuality and like or like yes. evocative in that sense. Absolutely. I like, yes. I like I, that. Very, very personally. Berlin. Very yeah. Berlin. The thing is, is that if she hadn't been so extroverted, she should have been a fashion designer. Just she had just an amazing ability to curate looks. And absolutely. We don't even always like her taste, but she was amazing. It's amazing. still amazing. Yeah. yeah. And it's, I mean, it's old. So, yeah, yeah you look at it and go, oh, that's a little bit much. You know, but uh, So, anyway, she created created the look. She had no idea how to do acting on for the screen. No idea at all. She relied completely on von Sternberg. First of all, what he did is he, cre- he was a master of lighting. He really had technique. He had amazing technique. So, he took her lighting for her, and she always said, she said she'd look at her self on screen and her face looked like a potato and what he did is he lit her such that it brought out the planes in her face and he i i forget i don't know the technique technical aspects and we don't need to talk about that but there was something about some top lighting that would light down and it would create a shadow under her nose and if you look at her almost all of her films you'll see a little shadow that was, is the shape of her nose. And right she, under her nostrils. She called yeah. it her butterfly. So it's a, like a little tiny dark shadow butterfly under her nose. And what it did is it defined her nose. And also then there was a light that defined her cheekbones. And then, of course, her eyes were very lit up. So that she looked like... Almost kind of otherworldly. Like a sculpture. I mean, yeah. she's so beautiful. And, of course, when she lost more weight and, it, and, the, and uh, made more planes in her face, it became... M- even more stark and clear. But he did that uh, first in the uh, Blue Angel to some effect. I think it's kind of fascinating that, like, you were telling me about this butterfly and how this tiny detail, wouldn't think it makes such a difference, but it does visually. And mm-hmm. she said that that was, like, the thing, right? Right. The, the thing that she, and she would never allow, she learned how that lighting worked so that when she wasn't working with von Sternberg, she demanded that she have the lighting a certain way to make sure that effect was there. And when you watch the films, you see it all the time. And it, certainly in close up, when she's in shots with other people, it's a little bit different. The other thing that he did was she was complaining that her hair looked blah. I mean, it just looked, didn't look good. And so he figured out a way to light her hair from behind. All these lights, it must have been pretty amazing. But he lit her hair, and you'll see it, where it looks like her hair is a golden halo. It looks like this light, beautiful... You look at it, you almost think you're seeing golden hair, even though it's black and white. Totally, yeah. And he did that. And what they did was, when they are in Hollywood, they put out this sort of publicity story that what they did was that they put gold powder on her hair so because that sounded better than a light lighting you know although the lighting is much better more creative and they never put gold powder in her hair and she would make up stories oh it's so funny because i'd kiss my co-star and he's come away and his nose would have gold paint you know gold on it well her co-stars first of all wouldn't put up with that and second of all it's not true so (laughs) if you see her um, second film, Morocco, you'll see this effect 
and the, the next couple of films. Uh, you, you can see it somewhat in the Blue Angel, but the Blue Angel was really huge because, first of all, she was starring with one of, well, if not the biggest star in, in German film, Emil Jannings. He's a really big, rotund guy. She just thought he was a ham. She thought she said he was just a ham. She did not appreciate his acting at all. And apparently, uh, Marlene was getting so much attention from the director because she was his creature, Joseph von Sternberg. He would sit there on the on on the screen or on the uh, set, and he would tell her exactly what to do, when to raise her hand, where to look, what to do, and he was really bringing her along. And Neil Jannings got pissed he was he was supposed to be the star and he was the the star generally speaking and here's this young upstart she's very beautiful people are paying attention to her and he was being upstaged and he got really angry and there was one scene where he's in the dressing room and they're they're playing the scene where he's the jealous husband at this point in in the film and he gets really angry and he starts to strangle her and he really was choking her Oh, my God. And he was really choking her, and, and they had to stop. You know, they had to pull him off and everything. He was so angry. What an asshole. Seriously. Oh, what a jerk. I mean, he could have really hurt her, you know? <laughs> anyway, uh, so this film is basically she's a floozy. He's a, 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 a school teacher. A, a school teacher, a, what they called a professor at that time, even though this wasn't college. I don't think he taught it. It was more like a high school kind of thing, gymnasium kind of thing. Anyway, he sees her. Because he's coming to defend, you know, to, to route out his students who are watching these terrible tawdry shows. He becomes enamored. He asks her to marry him. She marries him. And then basically he's destroyed socially because he married a floozy. And he ends up just going downhill from there. He becomes kind of a clown. Or he becomes a literal clown. In, in the show, right. Mm-hmm. Which is the opposite of his status and how proud he was of his status at the beginning. It's a pretty good film. I, I, I think it holds up pretty well. Uh, very interesting. I think it's a little bit more historically interesting than yeah, it is maybe like a sure. real enjoyment. Um, one of the especially interesting things about it, didn't they do, they did a dubbed version of it? No, they didn't. They didn't have dubbing in those days. This is the early days of sound. So they had not figured out how they could put a different sound to a film because the way the films ran they on the film itself there was a sound part of it and so they would be recording on the film so you couldn't dub anything it wasn't possible Mm. so what they did was instead is they shot two versions of the film side by side so first they do a scene in german and then they do a scene in english and And they were all bilingual yes well i don't know how bilingual they were but they learned their lines in, in english and what and the Blue Angel, just uh, looking here, is it was released, it was made in 1930. So this is only the year after Sound, because Sound came in in 1929. Okay. So it was still very rudimentary. So basically what they did in order to have a film that they could release in the United States, because there weren't subtitles and there was no dubbing, is they actually just filmed the film twice, once in English and once in German. That's pretty amazing. Do you know if that was common at all? Uh, I, I think it was fairly common for European films they did I don't think they did it for American films makes sense they just did it in English because you know but I think these uh, European films they did it but it didn't last very long I mean the technology was going so fast that it wouldn't have been very often that they'd had to do it maybe you know I don't know a couple years or whatever yeah Yeah. someday I'll learn all that but what's interesting is that uh, they went ahead and filmed these two films side by side same film side by side and the film premiered in Germany, and at this time, Hitler was on the rise. Hitler was, the, the Nazis were 
really starting to, you know, get some steam. He had he wasn't chancellor yet or anything like that, but it was bad times and things were getting, you know, getting violent. So Marlena had the opportunity to go to the United States. There was a request uh, from a studio uh, to give her a contract. And actually, the story I've heard, this would be Paramount Pictures, Esther, uh, that von Sternberg actually was going to go back. He had a contract. He was going to make films. And he said to them, I will not come back. I will not make films without her. So apparently he's the one who fixed it up for her to have a contract, that she didn't have to have a seven-year contract. She only had to have a three-picture contract. Because wow. at that time, what the studios would do with new actors is they say, seven-year contract, we own you. And we'll build you up and we'll invest in your persona and so forth and so on. And we'll put you in films, And but you are under contract, can't work for anybody else for seven years. Which is really pretty draconian, and there were a lot of lawsuits later. Betty Davis was one of the people who who filed a lawsuit and break her contract, and a few others, because it just it you know in two years or three years you're a star, four more years they get you on the cheap. I mean they had to raise some pay, but get you on the cheap. They can make you do whatever they want. You have no control over building your own career, or what kind of parts you accept, because if you turn down a part then you were on suspension and it extended your contract further for the oh, time. Wow. Yeah, and they could punish you for, for doing that. Um, it was an awful system. I mean, there were benefits to it as well. But if the studio had decided he didn't like you anymore, which is what happened to uh, John Gilbert, who's an, a famous actor in, in the silent era, decided they hated you, they could just ruin your career. You couldn't walk away. And it was just terrible. So she was really, really lucky. Von Sternberg took care of her. I mean, he really took care of her. He found a house for her to live in when she got there. He arranged for uh, when her husband and daughter came over, he arranged for them to come over. In fact, he became extremely good friends with her husband. They hmm. were just real pals after That's that. That's cool. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it was very interesting. And he, you know, he made, he negotiated her, her salary. So he did, he did well by her. He adored her. Now, just as a side note, von Sternberg was married at the time. So it seems to me that this intimacy and the way that von Sternberg formed her, and she admits this, it, she doesn't deny that he actually created her persona and her look and her iconic image and made her what she was. She, she never denied that through, through her whole life. But it seems to me that this intimacy, artistic intimacy, this life intimacy where he was, you know, giving her, finding her a place to live, so on and so forth, along with the sexual intimacy for Marlena, the way she operated in the world, that, that without all of those pieces... It, it couldn't have worked. It wasn't, you know, and I, I don't mean that, oh, well, if she didn't have sex with him, he wouldn't have helped her. helped her. I think he still would have helped her. And he did, actually, after they broke up. She would still go to him with questions and ask him how to handle this, that, or the other. And he would still give her advice, even though they didn't work together anymore. But I don't think it could have happened if it hadn't been that almost enmeshed together. That's, that's just my opinion. Anyway, so she takes off... Well, this is an amazing story. So the, the Blue Angel premieres in Berlin. She has gotten this contract offer, which she accepts. She, after the, the uh, premiere, she walks out of the theater, gets in a cab, 
drives to the train station, gets on the train to go to the boat to go to America. So the very evening of the premiere. Wow. She gets to the United States, and the whole point, as I said earlier, is that Paramount was looking for a star to rival Garbo, because Garbo was the big thing. She Greta. was Greta Garbo. Sorry, Greta Garbo. Hopefully everyone knows who she is. <laughs> Greta Garbo. Uh, I won't digress on Greta, but someday we'll talk about her. So Greta Garbo was had planes in her cheeks. She had lidded eyes. She was sensuous. She was European. She was considered to be mysterious and, ah, oh, Garbo. Where was she from? Sweden. She was from Sweden. So they... They decided. And who was she under contract with? I don't remember. Okay, Arrival Studio. Arrival Studio. What's interesting is is that when Marlena was in a young woman, twenties, trying to make her way, she was obsessed with Gar- Garbo. She would watch Garbo's films because Garbo was famous at this time through the silent period. She would watch Garbo's films. She would look at her style. So a lot of Marlena's style is actually ripped off from Greta Garbo. So when we do Garbo, we'll be looking for that. Definitely. But, you know, she definitely ripped off Garbo a lot. And, and other people, too. And when I say ripped off, I say it in the best way artistically. You have to rip people off. She studied them, yeah. Yeah, you have to be influenced. Yeah. So anyway, but, but the, I say rip off really because Dietrich would never admit it. And later in Hollywood, when they were head-to-head, she was always pissed because... Garbo was ahead of her, and she was always like putting her down and saying bad things about her, and so on and so forth. So, that she has no taste. That she has but... no taste, and she's terrible. And and I don't know if we should go into this now. I could do it later, but later Garbo had uh, a lover named Mar- Mercedes Acosta, who was a, a woman. It's a woman's name. Love all these bisexuals in Hollywood. Yeah, exactly, and she was she was a writer. Yeah. So she ended up then breaking up with Garbo, I think. And then she meets Marlena, and then she has this long affair with Marlena. But Marlena's pissed because she's getting the, the cast-offs. There was an, an actor I mentioned earlier mentioned earlier named John Gilbert, who was a flippin' heartthrob in the silent era. Yeah, and pretty he, hot. Oh, he, yeah, he was, he was pretty cute looking. Yeah. He was adorable. Yeah. So full of energy. So sad, sad story. We'll do John, Garbo, or John Gilbert someday. <laughs> but anyway, he was... Uh, he did a lot of films with Garbo. He was Garbo's lover. In fact, they almost got married, and she stood him up at the altar. <laughs> wow. <laughs> then he's drinking, and Marlena hears about John Gilbert is killing himself with drink, and she goes, I'm going to save him. She literally goes up to his house, knocks on his door, and becomes his lover. <laughs> 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 and there were a couple more like that. <laughs> following Garbo around. Picking up her crumbs. It's so funny. So anyway, um, she was brought over to be Garbo's uh, antagonist, her rival. And Garbo did not last as long as Marlena did in the films. Garbo uh, pretty much petered out when the war started. She, uh, her career kind of died and she wasn't really able to come back. So uh, Marlena did outlast her and got the last laugh, I guess. Um, so anyway, uh, they finished the Blue Angel. Her first starring role, uh, she'd been, like we said, in a bunch of silent films, but they're really, really hard to get. I think we only were able to watch one or two of them, and they were okay. Mm-hmm. She was Marlena. She was lively. But she came to the United States, and the first movie that she and von Sternberg did, and part of the contract was is that she was uh, going to pick her director and 
or and be with von Sternberg. They did a movie called Morocco. And this night they did this film also in 1930. So two films in 1930, and I do not like the film that much because the script is dumb. It's kind of loose. Yeah, loose and dumb, and oh god! She, in the end, he's a foreign. Uh, she's in with Carrie, uh, not Carrie Grant. Gary Cooper is her lead. First of all, Gary Cooper, shitty actor. I don't care. He's a bad act. Good looking guy. <laughs> Terrible actor. <laughs> Tall wanna, and good looking. I want to give you a few drinks. And then have you, <laughs> maybe we should do a segment where it's like drunk Hollywood, <laughs> yeah. and you can just describe Hollywood like actors and biographies while you're tipsy. <laughs> Uh, I don't care. (laughs) Anyway, so he's he and he's always lounging around in his foreign legion outfit, the white outfit with the gun belt, and then they have that hat with the little flap on the the flap on the back to protect the neck from the sun. So he's always like, and he's like a real ladies' man. Oh God, he's awful. I hate him. Um, (laughs) So anyway, she is a. A floozy. Uh, she rolls into town, right? But a hi- yes, yeah, she does. But she's a higher class floozy. She gets off. Yeah, she gets off the boat and she comes in and she's a singer. But she's you know she's she's like independent. Yeah. He like tries to help her at the beginning and, and she's sexually like, free. No. no, not not Gary Cooper. Somebody else tries okay. to help her. Um, so anyway, she, she but she's you know, she's a free. She's free. And, and anyway, so she. Oh God. <laughs> Try and compress it. We're looking at the the sound bar, and it's just, we just got really loud. Yeah. But. Okay, we got to calm down here. Yeah. So anyway, but what I do like about this film, and I do recommend seeing it, is she's amazing. She is the quint- quintessential uh, von Sternbergian Marlena. <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, just to let you know that Garbo's uh, studio is MGM. Oh, okay. Okay, sorry, and. Uh, so anyway, yeah, it's very von Sternbergian. First of all, she wears her tails and top hat, yep. black tails and top. Amazing, awesome, so oh, good, fantastic. Yeah. With the cigarette, and she's got. And see, I think My she's got her patterns. She's got a French manicure too, which yeah. I think before they became. That's true. I know, you can just look at the That's picture. Tr- You're right. Pretty yeah, amazing. her nails. She uh, she really was at the forefront of a lot of right moments. <laughs> and as I said, she was really known for her. Um, her affairs. Yeah. And so Gary Cooper was good looking and she didn't think he was too smart, but she wasn't able to kind of get into his pants because he had a girlfriend named Lupe Velez, who was a... <laughs> Lupe Velez? Yes. Lupe okay. Velez. Oh, Lupe. Okay. Yeah. Oh, did I say it? Lupe? You, you said Lupe, yeah. Okay. Lupe Velez. <laughs> She's gorgeous. Oh, I mean, look at a picture of this woman. Black hair beautiful so gorgeous and anyway she was a gary cooper's girlfriend at the time and marlena basically said that uh she never got off his lap so and she hated marlena because i'm sure she was flirting with him and giving him the come off they did end up having an affair i guess he would it was like her dressing room was you know needed the sign if it's a rockin', don't come a knocking <laughs> she had people into her dressing room and then her assistant or whatever would stand outside and make sure somebody oh wow <laughs> Yeah, it was pretty pretty. But anyway, getting back to Marlene, her outfits. There's the 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 black tie tails. Do you want to say the scene that's it's the iconic scene that's amazing? Are we saving that for later? Oh, are we? Okay, yeah, the okay. most iconic moments. Yeah. Okay, so this is one. So so we'll talk about it later. But anyway, she had amazing uh, uh, marabou boas and bangles and sequins sparkly. and sparkles and 
Oh, just just amazing. She was so, so gorgeous in this film. And what's also interesting is that this film came out in the United States first. Huge hit, then Blue Angel. Oh, the second, okay. Which I thought was... Uh, which I thought was kind of interesting. Um, yeah, she's really like she looks so evolved in this in Morocco as compared to the Blue Angel. Yes, yeah. absolutely. The light maybe it was because they were at Paramount where they had everything, True. and it was high, the edge of high tech. So von Sternberg really had what he needed to make a crisp, beautiful film. And also, she lost again, lost a bunch of weight. Von Sternberg was working on her, which she wanted to too. I mean, she. What was really interesting is in this film, she still felt she was too heavy, and she had to sing a. a she, there's one point where she sings a song. In fact, um, there's a photograph of it where she sort of like got a, a unitard on, like a one-piece black yeah. thing with a belt and kind of hot pants. Yeah, the kind of like hot pants. And the thing was, is she was supposed to wear like something with a garter, mm-hmm. but it was considered like too racy for Americans, Ooh. which they could handle in Germany, but not in America. So they put these hot pants on it. And what's interesting is when she put them on. I want she, that outfit, actually. That looks awesome. She absolutely, ha- she absolutely looked at him, but look at the, uh, she, yeah. she looked at her legs because her legs were very white and she just thought they looked so fat with the, because the, the way, where, where it cut it, her in the thigh, it made her thighs look short and fat. She didn't like it. So she added this huge marabou, which is like big fluffy feathers, boa around her neck so that when she sang, she stood kind of sideways and she draped the boa down the side of her legs so you couldn't see her fat thigh <laughs> in her mind. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think her thigh was that fat, but she no. felt it was. And uh, so that's what she, that's how she handled that, which I thought was very funny. Apparently she was kind of excited about her solution and she went home and like told her daughter like... Yeah, her daughter was there. Uh, she she would, she had a, uh, I think Maria, her daughter was what, about seven or eight, eight at this time and she brought she would not send her daughter to school she never sent her to school uh she i think probably marlena really hated school because it was so oppressive to her plus she wanted to kind of keep her daughter she was very possessive she she uh, you know she wanted to be the, the one and only sole focus of whoever she was with including her daughter and so she brought her and her daughter was like her little maid she kept her makeup in places and she uh, you know she she had little jobs in fact she had a little white coat like the makeup lady did that she wore oh my god <laughs> yeah jesus <laughs> yeah exactly so she was there when all this was happening and uh the very at the very end i'm we're giving this away i'm sorry but the film is 85 85 almost 90 years old so i'm giving it away uh at the end she with all her choices and everything she decides she's going to follow be a camp follower and follow this is one of why i hate the movie within the plot of the movie yeah so he Horrible. he rolls out uh on yeah, he's going. To, he's going out. He's going out to into the desert, just as soldiers do. She's going to be a camp follower and follow him into the hot, hot sands of the sun. It's, it's just so stupid because she's got everything. She's got her own career. She's independent. She's doing well. Material comfort. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so, but she has to give it all up so that she can follow this guy into the desert. And she's just wearing like this dress. And she's just going to, like, walk out into high the sand and follow. And, and she's wearing high heels. But von Sternberg had her wear the high heels, and she thought it was really, really stupid. And she didn't want to wear them because she was not going to wear high heels on the sand. So she takes – so she, she – goes barefoot. So she goes barefoot, and then she sees the film, and she goes, like, oh, he was right. I should have worn the high heels. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And then, and then one of the most amazing uh, things or uh, interesting things in her life is her very first day – on the American film lot. Of course, she wouldn't admit it, but she was really, really nervous. She wanted to do well. I mean, this is big time, and she's getting a chance here. 
and she comes in on the ship, right? And the very first scene, she has to say, I don't need any help. That's her very first line, first thing she says. Um, and she says it, and she says, I don't need any help. And so, no, cut, cut, and says, do it again. I don't need any help. And, of course, she whatever her accent is. And over and over, she could not elide that and get rid of that sound in between L and P. And they said, they did it again, again and again. She couldn't get it. They're working with her. Da, da, da. 49 takes. <laughs> she finally gets it. Oh, man. Yeah, I, could you imagine? That yeah. must have been hell. And hell for everybody. Yeah. So they ended up uh, being able to print a take, and she finally said it correctly. And then throughout the film, the way Von Sternberg worked with her, because she didn't know the film, and she didn't know how to act in the film, and she really wasn't much of an actress, he did something that was, I think, the core of her... Method. Method, and her persona, and her acting, which later, she, I think... She's a smart she could woman. Do for she, herself. She, yeah, yeah, she was not a dummy, but she she internalized all this, so she ended up being apply, being able to apply it to some extent. I don't think she was ever as good as she was after she stopped working with Von Sternberg, in my opinion. But what he did was he it was almost like they they would do in silent films because they couldn't hear anything. They'd say, "Go over there, come this way, look at her," and that's how they'd give stage directions because nobody could hear it so the actors would just be doing it in real time yelling all the time yeah yeah so what he would do is he would tell her before she would go on to it she would say he would say okay gary cooper's going to come in look at him count one two then say you better go now move to the door turn right on the count of one two three four don't look at him but say i'm then stop count one two Three, four, look at him, say slowly, beginning to like you. (laughs) (laughs) And if you watch the scene, it works. It's amazing. Yeah, totally. (laughs) It's so sultry and it's amazing. And it was completely mechanical. Right. She wasn't put no feeling in it. There was no method acting. There was no sense memory. Right. She was just counting counting and saying, counting and then looking. And it, it was amazing. It was amazing. And, and it's interesting because later on when she worked uh, other films and she tried to, like, act, it, was, it was, didn't work. Yeah. It didn't work at all. <laughs> so, uh, so in terms of when they were made, Blue Angel, then Morocco. In terms of their release, Morocco, then Blue Angel, because Morocco was a huge hit. So Blue Angel was very easy. They already had it in the can. Uh, they released it. And so her it was meant to be i think there was some sort of destiny where she had to follow this path because that that's it was so easy give me the man who does things does things to my heart i love the man takes things into his hands and gets what he demands and when we're alone 